Here's a pen. Catch. Oops. <laughs> uh, just a couple of things before we uh, kick off looking at Romans 8. We're going to work our way through this over three talks uh, this weekend. I want to draw your attention to the table that's over here on my left and your right. Uh, there are three cards on the table. Um, two of the cards are for Derek. Uh, you know that we often pray for Derek at church. Derek Bates uh, was involved in a very serious car accident in March last year. He was part of SALT and he and his wife Jenny are now in Sydney. Derek is yet to get out of hospital. Uh, one of the cards is uh, an encouragement card. Uh, the other card is a birthday card because in a couple of weeks' time, Derek turns 80. And you may have never met Derek, but I encourage you all just to write something on both of those cards. Uh, the other card is for Bruce and Sue Ellen Watt. Uh, you may remember if you were at camp last year that um, two of the cooks that we had with us uh, were Bruce and Sue Ellen. Sue Ellen was sometimes in a wheelchair. Uh, and her husband had been her primary carer. Well, since the camp last year, uh, Bruce was diagnosed with uh, a, a blood cancer, which uh, he's been treated for. Uh, he's also got COVID during that period of time, uh, and the uh, stem cell transplant that he's needing to have, there have been all sorts of issues uh, taking place. We made contact with them just saying that we'd be missing them at the camp and that we'd be praying for them. Uh, and uh, just this morning we got uh, a message back from Bruce saying uh, that at 3.15 this morning his brother died uh, of a stroke at the age of 64. He wasn't a believer. Uh, and so we encourage you to also write on their card just to be um, encouraging them and we'll send these off uh, to, to both these couples after the camp. Uh, how about I just lead in prayer for them both now. Loving Father, we do pray firstly for Derek and for Jenny. May they know your constant love and care even though they're living in a, a significantly painful situation which has been prolonged. Uh, we pray that your presence will be clear to them, uh, that you will comfort them by your word, by your spirit, by your people. And we do pray that Derek will be able to get out of hospital, that he'll be able to return uh, to living again with Jenny. Uh, may his birthday uh, in a couple of weeks' time be a great encouragement. I pray that uh, it'll be a time where family and friends are able to celebrate his life. We also uh, bring before you Bruce and Sue Ellen and their wider family. Um, please be bringing healing to Bruce, uh, strengthen him, may his treatment go well and please help uh, them to grieve at this time as, as he's lost his brother uh, and also to be a word of gospel hope uh, to those around them as they share the, the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Uh, it's sad to have to start uh, a talk, really, by sharing some, some painful news, but that really is the nature of the world that we live in, isn't it? We, we live in a world of pain. Uh, we've been experiencing it on our shores over the last couple of years, as everybody has around the world. Uh, it comes in all kinds of ways, whether it's warfare, whether it's crime, uh, whether it's sickness, uh, whether it's corruption, whether it's famines, whether it's other natural disasters, the reality is that our world is a world of pain. And we're going to look at how God has equipped 
his people to live in this world. Uh, there's particular suffering, of course, also for believers. Uh, there are some who, if they acknowledge in their community that they trust in Jesus, are pretty much signing a death warrant. We don't live in situations like that. Maybe we'll be ostracised by family, perhaps by workmates, but by and large, being Christian in our country is not too difficult. Uh, but we're going to be looking at a part of the scriptures that will remind us that we are the best equipped people on the planet for living in a world of pain. We are. And it's not because we live in a beautiful part of the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales. It's not because Australia has one of the highest standards of living on the planet. It's not because of health care and stable government and all of those things that we take for granted. It's because of God and he's at work in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. And we're going to be encouraged by this and I hope that it will reshape our thinking and that it will encourage and embolden us to live as God's people uh, as we go from here. So if you'd like to uh, open up your handouts, your booklets, uh, you'll find that there is the passage that's printed and you might like to look on with this. If you've got your own Bible, of course, you can keep that open. But we've printed this out uh, with some particular uh, bold words that are on the text. Uh, I'll draw attention to that. If you're looking for booklets, there's some just outside on the piano, uh, if you didn't manage to get one on the way in. Um, we'll be looking at the text because as we come to grips with what God's saying to us, we'll see just how well God has resourced us uh, for living in this world. Now, I'm aware of the fact that um, in starting in Romans chapter 8, I'm really dipping in halfway uh, through an argument. And so what I want to do, first of all, is just take you on a very rapid journey uh, through Romans 1 to 7, so you can see uh, a little bit of how significant Romans 8 is. Now, it's a very rapid journey, by the way, and I will skip a few stations along the track. Uh, but in Romans chapter 1, we're introduced to Paul, who is the one who brings the gospel of God. And the gospel of God, the good news of God, is actually focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the fact that Jesus is God's appointed Messiah. He has been raised from the dead and now rules over everything. And one of the things that Paul is keen to address as he writes this letter to the Romans is how God works without favouritism to the Jews and to the Gentiles. There is a priority to the Jews, that is, God reached out to them first, but in reaching out with the whole of the gospel to the whole of the world, God brings all his people together and they need to learn to live with each other. Uh, so in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told that God's wrath has been revealed. God is angry and he's angry against people choosing to reject him as the creator and worshipping created things instead. And so God hands people over to their rebellion against him and we live in our hostility towards God in a whole range of different ways. When you get into chapter 2, Paul is saying it's not just uh, Gentiles who've rejected God the Creator, but when God made himself known to the Jewish people and gave them the law, that is, 
the Old Testament as we know it, when God introduced himself verbally uh, through his word to his people, that didn't help them. Um, it should have helped them because they've got God's word, but it didn't help them because people's uh, reaction to the word was still to disobey. And so by the time you get to chapter 3, whether people have had the word of God or whether people don't have the word of God, they still stand condemned because we either reject God's word or our consciences reject what we should know about God from the creation. And so everybody stands under God's judgment and falls short of God's glory. And so then in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, Paul goes on to talk about the difference that Christ makes and how into that situation of God's judgment, God sends Christ to take God's judgment upon himself so that as we trust in Jesus, we can be set free. And that introduces the idea of God's means to be right with him always being through trusting in Jesus. It is faith that is credited as righteousness. And Paul says it's always been that way. It was that way with Abraham. You go back in chapter 4 of Romans, he says, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then he'll go on to talk about how God always credits faith as righteousness. That is, it's not through what we do, it's through trust that we can be right with God. Into chapter 5, we hear a bit more about Christ being our peace with God. He makes his enemies at peace with him through Christ's death. He goes on to talk about how we're either in Adam and so facing God's judgment or in the second Adam, Jesus, and therefore come to righteousness. Chapter 6, he answers a couple of questions. He says, if it's by trusting in what God has done through Christ, does it then matter how we live? May I not just do as I please, because that would increase uh, God's perceived graciousness. And he says, may it never be, and answers that question. And so we get into chapter 7. And chapter 7 actually... Uh, points out the difficulty, the struggle of pleasing God. The struggle that it is to please God. And many of you will know uh, something of that personal kind of angst. I, I don't do what I want to do. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. And there's a key turning point in chapter 7. I told you this is going to be a fast track. There's a key turning point where he differentiates between what God does in us through the law and what God does in us through the Spirit. And that's early in chapter 7. For the rest of chapter 7, you get no mention of the Spirit at all. It's all about what you can do through the law. And what can you do through the law? Well, nothing to please God. See, the reality is that the law in and of itself only condemns because it just highlights how we fall short and so we're left in a bind and Paul says towards the end of chapter 7 who will rescue me from this body of death so there's your introduction and so with with great uh, fanfare if you like we open chapter 8 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. See, the picture that is in mind is that we cannot be made right with God just by observing the law. That will only highlight our problems. We need to be transformed. We need to be set free. Imagine a hospital, right? Um, And in this hospital, you have a huge staff, but it's only made up of radiologists and pathologists. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, because you are being completely healthy and you've never had to go near a hospital, well, then you're lucky. But basically, those of you who do know, know that the radiologist and the pathologist are only ever going to be able to diagnose your problems. If you want to get help from what they diagnose, you're going to need a surgeon or a physician. What we have when it comes to the law is good diagnosis. What we need is a surgeon or a physician. And so what the law fails to do, God enables by his spirit. We need the spirit in order to change. We need the spirit to be set free. We need the spirit to be transformed into the people that God is enabling us to be. And we see that this is made possible by God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The picture here is of Jesus coming in and paying the requirement of the law. What was the requirement of the law? Well, you could look at it in two ways. The requirement of the law, first of all, was perfect obedience. If you lived a perfect life, if you never did anything wrong, if you always pleased God in every way, from your inner being, in every expression then you'd be right with God. A perfect person has no problem relating to God. Only problem is finding that perfect person. The righteous requirement of the law for all non-perfect people is death. It's condemnation. It's the judgment of God. See, how does God meet the righteous requirement of the law by sending his son in both ways? There is one who lives in perfect harmony with his Father. There is Jesus meeting the righteous requirement of the law by never disobeying God, by never making himself more important. Jesus, in perfect obedience to God his Father, is the only one qualified then to pay the price for you and me that is of death and judgment. So Jesus meets the righteous requirement, singular, of the law by being the perfect sacrifice who dies in our place. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Therefore, there is now hope. There is a future. You see, we can come before God now knowing that there is no debt to be paid. The language of Romans is justification. That is, 
we can be declared righteous before God because of Jesus. We can have full, complete, perfect standing before God because of Jesus. We can come into God's presence without fear of judgment because of Jesus. And we see in verse 2 that because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I think law is being used slightly differently in those terms. That, that is, the Spirit who gives life sets us free from just the condemnation of being under the law because of what Jesus has done. So we come into a situation of spiritual life. We are set free to live in a new way, in a new realm, in the way of the Spirit. And there are two outlooks here on life. That is, we can look at life through the flesh, or the old NIV said the sinful nature. I don't think it's just talking about you know, what we've got um, holding our intestines and, and blood vessels in. It's not just the physical flesh. Uh, but, but it's got to do with living in this world with all the spiritual problems of this world. We can live that way or we can live according to the Spirit. And, and the means of the way of the flesh actually leads to death and the way of the Spirit leads to life. Now, I, I want to pick this up in the next uh, couple of paragraphs and I'm going to skip down to paragraph three, first of all. Uh, I'm sure that the Word of God was written to be read in, that, in the right order, uh, but for a couple of reasons, I, I want to start in verse 9 then. And, and I want you to see uh, that in each of these paragraphs, there are certain key words. The, the one that we've just looked at, paragraph 1, it was all about the law. Um, come down to, to paragraph 3, and you'll see it's about the Spirit, the realm of the Spirit, verse 9. The Spirit of God, verse 9. The Spirit of Christ, verse 9. Um, the Spirit, verse 10. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 11. His Spirit, verse 11. Now, it's all the same Spirit, right? But different language, different ways of describing the same Spirit. Um, all these things are introducing us to what it is that connects us to God and that is we have a relationship with God by His Spirit. Now, when, when you look at this closely, you see how important it is to be Trinitarian. That is to know that God is Father, Son and Spirit at the same time. Father, Son and Spirit. You see all there. The Spirit the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. They're not three uh, different ways of speaking of the Spirit. They're the same way of speaking of the Spirit, but the Spirit is intimately connected to the Son. The Spirit is intimately connected to God the Father. In fact, the Spirit is so intimately connected with the Son that in verse 10 it can say, but if Christ is in you, and it's been speaking about the Spirit being in you. So to say that the Spirit is in you is to say that Christ is in you. Now, what do we make of all this? Well, verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. First thing to say is that you cannot be Christian 
unless you have the Spirit. There's not two or more categories of Christians, those with the Spirit of God, those without the Spirit of God. I mean, there was, there was some in that transition period in the book of Acts who hadn't heard of the Spirit of God. Um, that the, They had to yet work out what it was. But now, as we look at what it is to be justified by the death and the resurrection of Jesus and God's Spirit come to dwell in us, it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells, it's the Spirit of God who dwells, it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. If we are not indwelt by the Spirit of God, then we do not belong to God. Because what connection do we have if we don't have the Spirit? It's actually the Spirit who brings us into the realm of God. It's it's God dwelling in us by His Spirit. That's what it is to be Christian. It's not an optional addition. But it's, it's saying more than this here too. It's saying that there is a realm of the flesh, or a kingdom of the flesh would be another way of saying that, and there's a realm of the Spirit, a kingdom of the Spirit. In other words, there's, there's a realm or a way of living where the flesh is dominant. And there's a realm or a way of living where the Spirit is king, where the Spirit is dominant. And for those who belong to Christ, they are now living in, in a tussle between realms. There's a, a, a warfare at work. There's the realm of the flesh which leads to death and there's the realm of the spirit which leads to life. And in verse 10, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, see, we're still in the realm of the flesh. We're still going to die. Our bodies are still decaying. We we will still uh, one day stand before God in judgment. That is yet to take place because that's what it is to be in the realm of the spirit. But, he says there, that if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. We're also in the realm of the Spirit. And we have to live in that realm of the Spirit. It's spiritual life, it's eternal life, it's debt-free life. That's how we are to consider, that's how we are to think. And we'll see that when we go back to the paragraph before. But notice in verse 11, the power that is at work within us. See, we are well equipped to live in a world of pain. We're well equipped to be able to live in all of the confusion and chaos and difficulty and struggle of this life because God's Spirit dwells in us. And God's Spirit is powerful. How is God's Spirit described? Well, look at verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead that's powerful and it's the same spirit who is living in you he says the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you that is we will be transformed in this life because of the spirit but in the life to come we'll be raised everlasting that that is the power that is at work within us that is God's power at work within us it's a wonderful privilege to have God's Spirit. That, that's, that's why he rejoices now that there is no condemnation. That is why he's able to leap with joy because of the transformation that happens. Because we're not left in the realm of death. If all we had was the law, and most of us aren't Jewish, so we wouldn't have even had that, then we would be without hope. 
But no, we have God's Spirit who applies the work of Christ to our hearts and our minds, and so we have incredible hope. Now come back to chapter two, uh, the second paragraph. What's the key word there? We'll notice how often minds gets mentioned. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, there's a contrast here of minds. Um, the, the, the reason I started with paragraph 3 is if we are indwelt by the spirit of the powerful God, then we need to apply our minds to remembering that. We need to take that on board. And we need to let the spirit shape our minds. And we need to have our minds anchored in what the spirit teaches. We, we need to be people who realise that we are to have a new mindset, to have transformed minds. Was it last year that we looked at Romans chapter 12, I think? Um, we, we spent a whole term looking at Romans 12, which starts, therefore we're not to be conformed to the way of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is where it comes from. We are to have spirit-changed minds. We are to think according to the spirit, not any longer to think according to the way of the flesh. Transformed minds, spirit-inspired, word of God, sword of the spirit-shaped minds. And so, where does this lead us? Well, there is a therefore in verse 12. Here's the application. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Where does it leave us? Well, we've been set free, we've been rescued from the realm of death. Don't go back there. We are to be led by the Spirit. We are to set our minds according to the Spirit. We are to live by the Spirit, not according to the flesh. The flesh led to death. Let, let me give you a, 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 a graphic illustration of this, if you like. Um, and this won't be difficult for at least one of us. Um, imagine you had a heart attack, all right? Um, and uh, you had to have some serious heart surgery to repair what had all been blocked up. You are not to go back to living the lifestyle that led to the heart attack. So when everyone else is going to Macca's and buying triple Macs and... Greasy chips and flurries and all of those good things, um, you leave them behind. If you smoked in the past, you, you stop smoking. If, if, if you're a heavy beer drinker, you stop drinking that. You, you just don't go back there. Um, because that led to a heart attack. That led to death. Right? So there's, there's a new way. And the obligation is to live the new way. Now, of course, that's... Uh, well, it's not a trivial illustration, but we're talking about a spiritual transformation here. So 
why would you go back to the life of opposition to God, of choosing your own agenda, of living as you please, which is according to the flesh and leads to death? Have you forgotten where it led? No, the obligation now is to live according to the Spirit, uh, to, to live by putting to death the misdeeds of the body, changing, transformed, a new mind, a new thought pattern, new information, new direction, new shaping, according to the Spirit. And then the final paragraph, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Um, the, the key word, notice here, well, it's, it's ideas more than a key word, has to do with being adopted into the family of God. You see it there in verse 14, if you're led by the Spirit, you're children of God. Uh, verse 15, adoption to sonship, being able to cry, Abba, the Aramaic for Father. Uh, the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It, it's family stuff that's here. See, we've been set free, we've been adopted in, we've been made children, literally sons, because in the ancient world, the son was the heir. We stand to inherit everything from God and we are co-heirs with Christ. Now, I don't know everybody's story here. It might well be that, that some of you are adopted. Some of you have adopted children. And one of the incredible things that happens when a child is adopted into a family is that they become like their parents. They become like their siblings. They share in the values. They share in the priorities of the family. They, they enjoy the love of the family which shapes them in a particular direction. We, we've got uh, friends that we've, we've known for many, many years who lived in South Africa, who adopted uh, a, a baby in South Africa uh, who was orphaned and they, um, they brought the, fam the, the child into their family they brought him back to Australia. He looks completely different from his mum and dad. Looks completely different, but has a very similar sense of humour. Has a, a very, um, well, he has exactly the same passion and commitment to his father in heaven. See, there's something about being brought into the family of God that is to change us and shape us. And the picture that we've got here is of children of God who are no longer condemned but set free, indwelt by the Spirit, led by God, adopted into the family, able to cry out to God as our Father and the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to God. God actually gives confirmation to us that we are part of God's family, enjoying the blessings of God. See, that is the privilege of being brought into God's uh, way and it is because of this that we get this wonderful promise that if we are children, then we are heirs. That is, we stand to inherit 
everything from God and co-heirs with Christ. Um, I don't think I stand to inherit very much from my father. Uh, uh, Maybe a little bit, I don't know. But I stand to inherit everything from my father in heaven for all eternity. And so do you. If. Did you see it? If. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Friends, there's a contingency here. And the contingency is that we persevere in the way of Christ, which is the way of suffering. And we're going to look at that in the next talk. But I want to ask you this question as we um, reflect on this chapter. Do you know who you are, really? Do you have a strong sense of your identity? It's interesting the the way the world is going when it comes to identity. Um, There was a time when our identity was largely shaped by our relationships by the family that we were brought into, uh, perhaps by the culture that we're a part of, maybe by the values and the priorities and, and the ethical norms of our community. But things have shifted and they've shifted at an extraordinary pace. So that now, identity is what I feel within about myself. Identity is what I want to create myself to be. And being authentic is living out my inner feelings. But there's a sad and lonely path ahead when people live that way. Because the reality is we've been created and we've been redeemed. And because God dwells in us by his spirit, And because God's word shapes our minds to understand who we are, then the best way that we can come to grips with who we truly are is to look to God's word. And if we want to create our own identity by living the authentic, self-fulfilled life, or if we simply want to take our identity from the things that we do or achieve in life, I am my career, or I am my experiences, then we'll be left with a very empty, flesh-shaped life. But if we recognise that we are who we are because of what God has done for us through Christ, that he sent his son to die for us and rise again, that he's adopted us into his family and given us his spirit and dwells within us by his spirit, what greater sense of identity could there be than that? But I wonder sometimes what would make a greater difference? Would it be losing my job or no longer calling myself Christian? Would it be not having my family or no longer calling myself Christian. You see, there are big things that shape who we are. 
And it's right in some ways that many of them do. Our family, our work, our experiences, our travels, our education, all these things contribute to who we are. But at the core, God's calling us to remember to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. God's calling us to understand who we are in the light of who he's recreating us to be. And so I want to urge us to be people who have a spiritual mindset, who understand ourselves in the light of God's word, who know that who we are at the core is born again, adopted into God's family, rescued, changed, brought from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit, having the incredible freedom that comes uh, through there being no condemnation from God, knowing the spirit of God to dwell in us, uh, that we might know God intimately and personally. That's who we are. And to thank God that he gives us everything that we need in Christ by his spirit. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for um, this wonderful chapter in your word that reminds us of all that you've given us. Please help us to take these things to heart. Please help us to set our minds on what the Spirit desires. Help our minds to be governed by the Spirit. And Father, help us to remember the pleasures and the freedoms <clears throat> and the challenges of living in the realm of the Spirit. May we keep in step with your Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you'll help us to live uh, in following Christ in this world of pain. Amen.